You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Yes, at the time of the evening where you join us on your favorite program, Legal Talk. And Alhamdulillah, this evening on Legal Talk, our favorite senior attorney, Ashraf Isup, has joined us. And mashallah, besides discussing all the topics on immigration and whatever happens with home affairs and so forth, Ashraf really gives us a value on uh, legal talk ashraf and uh, the listeners of markus sahaba assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and tell us how you're doing this fine uh, beautiful evening alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh alhamdulillah yes, it is as you say it's a fine beautiful evening and we're doing very well thank you with the help of allah and the blessings of allah absolutely i hope you're also doing well Alhamdulillah, you know, whenever we have you on the program, my stock rises and the expectations of the listeners also rises, uh, Ashraf. And, uh, you know, be, before we get in a topic uh, proper, well, uh, different cases uh, that the home affairs is having and so forth. Let's talk about, you know, the, uh, the, the they call it uh, the imminent war. But one of the things that they have said is America says, uh, you know, what uh, Putin is doing, he's evil, he's, uh, you know, uh, backed by the devil, and they call that a missile, they call it a Satan too. And, you know, it's it's so ironical, because many have said, like you and I have discussed uh, the monetary issues, the fiat money and so forth, and every time when that type of system collapses, uh, they reboot it by having a war. Now, perhaps your thoughts on that, Ashrafa, you know, uh, you, we need to interrogate this because, uh, you know, it's uh, many say money makes uh, the, the, the world go round. This is a Western uh, adage, but we know what makes our world go round. It's our spirituality. But your thoughts, uh, Ashraf? You see, I, I think that's an interesting starting point um, on, on what, you know, uh, what makes the world tick. Um, so I, I think the warning signs... Um, we're not, we're not um, taken, you know, seriously. Um, if you look at, um, you know, General Eisenhower's, um, you know, his address to them, um, and you know, he was the um, he was the president of the United States, right? Uh, but already in 1959. He, he he started looking into this thing called what is this military industrial complex that we're looking at and he was kind of warning against that right I mean you must understand this is notwithstanding his military background and um, he was the only general to be elected president 20th century he described and he warned against the military-industrial complex. Um, so the the point was that the U.S. until the last World Wars did not have an armaments industry, and um, and they they could basically just do agric- uh, agricultural equipment, right? But he said that they were uh, they were compelled to create this vast permanent armaments armaments industry, really of huge huge proportions. You can actually see it today. Uh, if you if you say Lockheed Martin, then you know that they produce certain kinds of fighter jets. Then another company like Boeing 
will produce another kind of uh, war machine. But this is an immense military establishment and large amounts of money have gone into it. You can see that, I, I, I think it's clear um, what um, you know Eisenhower was saying. And, and so you have to take into account that he was a US president, he was a military man, and then he says um, that they must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence. Uh, whether it was sought or unsought by the military industrial complex, because the potential was um, for disastrous rise of misplaced power. And now you can see his words have come true. And, you know, he was of the view that if you let that weight of this combination of military power and money power uh, exist, then it'll it'll be an end to the uh, democratic process. Now, you know, the Americans are big into liberties and democratic processes. He also warned that uh, you must not take anything for granted. And here's, here's was an interesting thing. He was like kind of calling on the citizenry. And he was saying that they had to be knowledgeable and alert. Um, because if they allow that, um, you know, uh, to, to continue without peaceful methods and goals, uh, then that is going to be, um, is definitely going to affect the future of the American state. At that point, he was already, he was already uh, alert to the scientific technological elite that existed. And, uh, and, and part of how the centralization of funding from the uh, federal government went hand in hand with these large corporations, you know. Um, and as you can see, again, all these years later, uh, almost to the T, all of his warnings have not been um, have not been adhered to. But um, you know, it is it is there. So. so Significantly, this was also part of his farewell address, you know. Mm. Um, and he held, while he held the, the reason for scientific discovery, uh, he was trying to say we must oppose the danger that uh, this public policy uh, could become captive of the scientific technological elite. So if I say in a very broad way, um, I mean, he's speech was remembered primarily to the, because of the reference to the military industrial complex. And, um, you know, he gained, uh, that, that speech gained acceptance during the Vietnam War. And um, a lot of people these days are saying, look, all of what he said uh, basically has come true in the, in the, present, uh, in the present world. So, yeah, I think what you're saying is uh, is true, but I'm saying, in addition to that, look at the source of where it comes out, uh, from. Mm. Um, no, no, no lesser than Dwight D. Eisenhower, general and uh, president of the United States.
Well, you tickled me, and I was just about to tell you Dwight D. Eisenhower, and I remember doing a lot of uh, reading uh, on him when I was a lighty. I was just like fixated with the U.S. and until I got conscientized. And you know, there's something about the United States of America. And once upon a time, they had abolished alcohol, and then uh, you found that you know the Kennedys were uh, assassinated because of the viewpoints on perhaps Israel and so forth. But you notice that uh, these com- uh, conglomerates that came to the fore, you know pushing off uh, the APAC, the, you know, uh, what they call it, the American-Israeli Press Affairs Committee and so forth. Uh, they got in there, they controlled and patrolled Congress. It is uh, decided who's going to be the next uh, president of the United States of, the, of America and so forth. But this armaments industry, uh, Ashraf, it had suited these conglomerates. And uh, the biggest, uh, I think, the benefactor of this happened to be the state of Israel. How do you react to that, Ashraf? Well, look, again, you have to look at where the, the source of money uh, comes from and where it is controlled. You know, if you have um, unlimited support uh, of the financial elite, remember Eisenhower spoke of the technological elite, uh, you have the financial elite of the world, then I think, you know, if you have an open checkbook, then the world is very much yours to, to rule and roost. Now, you can do that. As we know, empires don't last more than a thousand years. Um, and they come and go despite how significant or mighty or powerful they appear to be at the relevant time. Um, you know, the history has proven that empires will uh, collapse at, at you know some stage. Now, when you say that the state of Israel is a beneficiary of this uh, policy or, uh, let's say, armaments. Uh, Of course, it's not it's no secret. Um, They, given the best of the best, uh, yearly, year on year, uh, military aid from the U.S. And it's not a secret. This is is clearly open. Um, Surprising, uh, you know, ancillary to that, is that the right-wing Christians um, of the Bible? Mm. Uh, the Belt. The, you know, the yeah, yeah. You, you talk about belt, the Baptist US. Christians, uh, Zionist Christians, they call them, and they uh, decide who the next president will be, also because they had a massive uh, voting power. Ashraf, go ahead. Yeah, I don't think that the masses determine who the president is. Eh? Remember, there yeah. are only two parties in the states: Party A. Democrats and Party B, Republicans. And usually they will feel a particular candidate. But I think irrespective of who the candidate is, all of them have sworn uh, utmost loyalty to the state of Israel. And for better or for worse, that is a condition that you you find yourself um, in. But again, you know, you, you have to refocus. So where is this phenomenal money coming from to feed this? Um, you know, recently, I think the military industrial complex was displaced by the pharmaceutical complex as the most powerful people on earth. Remember, yes. just three years ago, they, they, they had the vaccine. And without the vaccine, mm. well, you were in big trouble, serious trouble, right? Now we know that this whole thing about the vaccine and is all all coming undone. 
But the point I'm making still goes back to, I think the ones that control uh, the resources, which is the monetary resources, will control policy and determination of uh, of everything else. Um, until the, until something sudden and dramatic happens, as we've seen in North Africa, Nigeria and other Central African Republic and other um, countries um, basically standing up against France, you know, and saying, right, that's it. You're out, pack your bags and go. And quick to take their place is obviously the Russians. Mm. Uh, and in some, in some respects, the Chinese. Now, when that happens, then the wholesale uh, sale of that company's resources, be it magnesium or whatever it is, um, you know, the, the wholesale theft of it has now been stopped. And uh, obviously, that will affect now, the knock-on effect would be, um, let's say, France and its allies. So then America will also would have seen, would have been seen to have lost its grip on the uh, African continent because now it's all about resources, right? If your rivals, the Russians and the Chinese, displace a Western backstate like France and its allies uh, from its economy and its country, well, it's going to have an effect on, uh, let's say, this just the price of raw material. Now, you know, in Niger, they have the huge supplies of nuclear fuel. And uh, so, so, so now, you, you know, you have to ask yourself, what's going to happen to the nuclear industry all over the Western world, including the U.S.? Um, yeah, so you can see there's a lot of geopolitical shavat is frightening on one level because we have absolutely no idea of what's going on and how it could pan out in the end. You know, Ashraf, you make a lot of sense. And uh, what I wanted to uh, get into whilst you're talking about the economy and you spoke about America could do anything that she wanted. But the uh, main thing is what had America done with the Ummah's money that uh, uh, many say, uh, you know, the uh, Arabs allowed to be hijacked for the purpose of, uh, you know, America uh, became a superpower with lots of help from the Arabs. How you, uh, how would you react to that, uh, Ashraf? Again, I mean, it's not a surprise what you're saying, because remember, and we've spoken about this previously, in 1973, Nixon said there was a temporary suspension of the dollar from the gold reserve, which up to that point, you know, you could only print so many dollars. And then he took that same self, same dollar, and he went to the Saudis, and he said, okay, uh, you will only trade your resources in my money. And the Saudis fell for it. And because, I mean, there's phenomenal wealth. But, you know, they were like spoiled children in a candy store. You know, they saw all these little sweets, and they went shopping, and you could see um, the stereotype of the Arab was that he would go and buy out a whole rack of clothes in Harrods and, you know, have a private jet with so many gold taps and, you know, silly little trinkets and toys, I would say. But here comes the problem. Their funds uh, were kept in American banks and utilized by the American banks to advance, and we've spoken about banking, right? So to advance the cause of banking. So... You're quite right when you say that the Arab money was basically 
uh, hoovered, and they, I think that's a good term to use. Yes. Seeing that it comes from America, uh, who was also head of the um, spy agency, um, Hoover. Yeah. And he, you know, and then, you know, he and they would, they would just absorb all of this Arab money into their uh, coffers, and give nothing back because now. The Arabs wanted some kind of semblance of defense after the disastrous defeat by Israel that they wanted to bolster their arms and ammunition and stuff like that. So they would, I mean, including the Iranians, for example, since 1979, uh, all of the Air Force was still um, uh, American-based. So they had to go and buy spears and things from America. You remember the uh, Iran-Contra controversy? Reagan Gate. Um, Yeah. So so again, you saw two days ago the so-called $6 billion uh, of Iranian funds were freed from South Korea and transferred to Qatar. So you could see, again, you cannot escape I mean, forget this, the name they gave this, um, this missile, yeah. um, Satan 2. Yeah, Satan 1 is this whole vast uh, military, not just military, sorry, economic spider's web. You know, it's, it's there. You cannot do a single transaction unless it goes through one or other bank. Um, you know, whether it's a swift transaction or whether it's whatever the nature of the deal, you cannot extricate yourself from the system, which when you look at it in, you know, in, in, its, in its simplicity, it really means the people that control the printing of money will control the destiny of mankind. You know, Ashraf, uh, thinking aloud, uh, they want this uh, one world order and they wanted to usher it, uh, you know, for a long, long time. And it uh, seems as if, you know, just about uh, getting it right for them. And then something comes, uh, there is a stumbling block, uh, another block comes in, like, uh, you know, the Russian, the Chinese alliance and uh, many other things coming through. And uh, then uh, what happens, Ashraf, then what happens uh, that these uh, two are having a tug of war? Um, It seems there'll be no winners. If uh, a nuclear war takes place, who's there to enjoy the fruits of the evil? <laughs> uh, if I may put it in, uh, in, in, in those terms, Ashraf. Yeah, well, look, um, I, I think when you say one world order, you have to start with the money. Eh? Mm. You know, now we already have the central banks looking at digital currencies, right? And um, I mean... It's gone. The, the the way that we did we did business in the past, um, it's completely different. So again, before we come to the uh, you know the ultimate uh, disaster, if there was going to be one of a nuclear war, it was basically um, the one world order was was around the, the currencies, digital currencies, more than a single government. And so you saw all the central banks were basically scrambling uh, to come up with their own, uh, you know, what they call CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, including South Africa. We all, we, even the, our, our government is looking at it. But 
you know, what is the core of this, uh, Shafa? Mm. It's a monopoly of money. Now, if the monopoly of money is uh, liquidated around the world, then, then, then that form of money now no longer will, will rule. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Let's take Bitcoin. Bitcoin is, is a fantasy. It's fiat money uh, basically created by blockchain computers around the world and somebody puts a value on it. And it's a value that far exceeds even the price of gold. So you can imagine how, um, you know, how, how impactful this is because obviously from the government's point of view, there's no cash, no organized crime, um, you know, but for us, it's a big thing because how, how are you going to exchange, you know, without getting value? And interestingly, you know, the IMF said that uh, central banks could accumulate sensitive payments and user data at unprecedented scale. So that's the story, Shavat, you know, um, the ability to spy on your citizens on every transaction, obtain security sensitive details about individuals and governments, even steal money. Um, you know, it's, it's like, uh, again, reference is made to George Orwell and Big Brother. Hmm. And, and you can see it, you know, it's a, it's a surveillance state. So again, how much of the human being uh, is left um, is is left to be free to do what he's created to do, which is to worship the Creator? Again, very very big challenges for us, and I don't know where we're going to find ourselves in this, but I do know that um, if if people are going to be as reckless as we've seen especially this Ukraine war, which is, you know, called out to be a proxy war. Um, just one second, you know, at the end of the day, we have all of these issues. And I, I think in, in everything, Shafat, we, we kind of seem to overlook one very, very big power. <laughs> and that is the power of the creator. Yeah. You know, you know he, he gives us so much of space, so much of rope so much of grace, so much of mercy daily. And it's as if when we speak, we remove Allah um, and his power and his might from, from everything happening around us because he is the, is the, you know, is the ultimate power. And, and, and people then foolishly uh, uh, assign power to themselves or power to to a bank note. Now, on that topic, it's, it's quite serious when you look at it because mm. and there was a very interesting uh, lecture on that, you see. And basically, there was, um, you know, the analogy that uh, Allah called all the angels and he, and he said, uh, tell me the names. And they said, we do not know. And then he called Sayyidina Adam and he taught Sayyidina Adam all the names and he gave him all of the names. And that Allah then said to the angels, well, you know not what I know. So, so using that as a starting point and how we trans, transpose that into power is that we give power to something that is powerless. We, we, we gave power to money. And in that, we committed the shirk of uh, 
of of worshiping money. So so you know in that again we come back to our central theme that you cannot be against Allah. You cannot. You're going to lose that war. So we have to keep on adjusting our own understanding of the time that we live in against the absolute clear backdrop and um, guidance of the deen and the, and the teachings. So we have to keep on refocusing because look, this madness will continue around us um, until it, it self implodes. I mean, who would have thought a year ago that you would have LGBTQ, RST, UVWX, Y, and Z making demands mm. for their recognition? And if you don't, well, then, you know, you the, you're the one that is wrong. So, uh, yeah, interesting. But I, like I say, our, our compass always points back to uh, the Quran and uh, the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And obviously... Uh, the the magnificence of how the Rasul Salaam, the final Prophet Salaam, brought this forward and made it available for us and easy for us to actually understand. Imagine how ignorant we would have been without that. At least we have a central point. No, absolutely, Ashraf. And you know, I'm glad you brought that issue in because uh, many have uh, fallen for this uh, meritricious world. And, you know, once you get, uh, you know, deep into this world and you start trusting this world and you start loving this world and, you know, there's this anecdote, this uh, the love of this world is a source of misery and you find uh, many people that are uh, miserable and those that are in this paranoia mode, uh, maybe I can hear a few shouting in my ear, Mrs. Shafaz, I've got over a million rands uh, in the bank or I've got a uh, $500,000 in my bank. Bank, Must I convert that to gold immediately? What shall I do? I mean, uh, you know, humans are humans. They make mistakes. And if they're shouting and screaming at us now, Ashraf, how would you advise? Well, you see, we've spoken about this thing called uh, hoarding of money. Um, and the bank is exactly where you hoard your money. Mm. Unfortunately, the more you hoard, the less valuable it becomes. For example, money is devalued annually. So even if you had a million last year, this year you had 900,000. What a 900,000 will buy you this year, you'll get less next year. So you can see the devaluating, the devaluation of money as we know it. Now, secondly, Shafat, we again say you know, we have to look back into our deen and take its teachings, right? Now, let's say, and this is a great appeal that I want to put out there to and a challenge to all our our community and, and the ummah. Let's say we made a near, I only want to change 1% of what I have to what is truly sanctioned in the deen. If you start with just an intention of 1%, I think it will make a huge impact. Not just because you are changing your, your means of exchange, but you're actually conscientizing yourself into uh, the mode to, to start finding solutions. Now, one of the solutions, you see, is... Um, um, De definitely the way we do business. And, and again, 
the Islamic laws of business is very, very, very sophisticated. Very, you know, um, people sell so-called housing estates, right? So in the Sharia, you cannot sell a property off the plan unless the house reaches roof height. I mean, can you imagine that kind of demand made uh, in the present housing system? Mm. That the you cannot buy some fantasy on paper. You got to get it up to roof height, and then the man decides whether he's going to fulfill the contract or not. So it banned futures markets because, again, that was open to speculation. So what I'm really saying, Shavad, one has to have a seismic, psychological leap from where we are to where we should be, and that should be a, an ongoing search, because with that comes the ultimate leveler of playing fields for all of humanity. Because right now the resources are um, skewed. In the hands of the few, they make a decision. They decide whether you you actually live or die. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this um, recent uh, report Mm. by uh, one of the professors from the States. And he said very, very clearly, you know, we, we went through two tremendous upheavals. One was the COVID, and the second was the vaccine. And you were not free to take it or leave it, Shafat. You were made to do it. So again, that you know, will will demonstrate to you a starting point. People are saying, ah, I've got all this money. What do you say? Must I change to gold, etc.? I mean, I think, you know, that's as foolish as saying that I'm against uh, um, um uh, global warming, so I'm going to start riding a bicycle alone to try and make a difference. Of course, you can't make a difference riding the bicycle alone. You can make a difference if one million people start riding with you, you know, with the same set of uh, goals in mind, the elimination of uh, fuel-based, uh, fossil-based fuels, try and clean up the environment. And we mustn't say it can't be done, Shavad. It happened in COVID. The world went down into lockdown. A single aeroplane wasn't flying. The oceans revived. The air got clean. But there we were forced to do it, you see. It's, all, it's as if we almost enjoy our slavery, you know, to, to its ultimate limit. It's like we have an insatiable appetite to be dominated. You know, I know a friend of mine said this once to me. He said, you know, Shafa, if you got um, a top business and you got all these luxurious cars and you're showing off all your, you know, your furniture, etc., etc., you're just a glorified manager for these conglomerates. And, you know, it made me think. And now, you know, as you talk to me, I can see things more clearly. And as you said, you know, being a part of this evil system because we allowed it to manifest and we are complicit and uh, we have sold our souls uh, literally to the devil, then uh, what happens, even uh, they will tell you, yeah, there's your Bitcoin, this is your alternative, and so forth. But then they'll say, oh, there's cybercrime, and they watch this guy's got all right billions of this, we can just uh, take it yeah. away. And you can't do anything because they got everything planned. And how they work is uh, with the uh, propaganda tools, the propaganda machines with the Hollywood and the Bollywood, they uh, bring in these issues, they uh, preempt it, and then it becomes a reality, and perhaps the people get a little bit, uh, you know, uh, desensitized. And the thinkers that make a noise, like Julius Assange and so forth, are incarcerated, put away, silenced for good. And, uh, you know, they wait for those uh, that will say, no, it's just another conspiracy theory, Ashraf. 
Yeah, well, one of the proven ways of discrediting any argument is to call it a conspiracy theory, right? I mean, that then makes the person arguing the point of view not to be taken seriously. Uh, he's dismissed as a crazy lunatic and that he can't prove what he's saying because it's in there. You see, it's a laden word, conspiracy and theory. Obviously, a theory is, a, you know, you can't prove. It's just what the hypothesis is. But if you look deeper into that, uh, I mean, you, you must realize, Shafar, I think maybe 99% of uh, society is not made up of thinkers. Uh, they made up of doers. Mm. They do as they have been commanded to do. The 1% would be the lonely voice uh, trying to make sense of it all and trying to reach out. Um, you know, it's as ineffective as, you remember Eric Cantona? Yes. Of United uh, Manchester United years ago. He understood this thing and he called for people to uh, remove the deposits from the bank, the run on the bank. But it fell flat because people didn't really understand or believe what he was saying. Now, you can be guaranteed, Shafat, and here we have a, uh, an example of the latest failing in the Habib Bank uh, saga. I mean, if all the depositors went together and said, right, uh, my credit, you know, I'm starting from the point where you said your friend said I've got a million, that one said I've got 500,000. Mm. It's all a fantasy. Mm. If there's a run on the bank, you don't get that. You get 50 cents or maybe 20 cents in the rent. So overnight, your money or what you thought you had had disappeared. Um, the other way that you could lose it all is uh, cybercrime. They just transfer that money. They see yes. it sitting there. Uh, you know, the banks uh, are, are run by people. People are vulnerable. Uh, syndicates know how to get to who's operational. And uh, I don't know if, you, if you've experienced this. There's a thing called a sum swap mm. fraud. Mm. You know, they, they call you uh, saying that, look, this is Vodacom and we're swapping your, your SIM for whatever. There was a breach and you give all the valuable information and they take over the phone and then they transfer these huge amounts of money out of your account. Of course, you fight to get it back. And I mean, you've got to prove that uh, you never received that SMS and you never authorized this and you never... But the window for that is so, so short. You know, they give you like 55 minutes to respond, Shabbat. Wow. And if you don't, let's say you're playing golf or something, like many people have done. After that golf game, your, your coffers are empty. Because, you know, you're not taking calls and you're not SMSing and you're not looking at your phone. So it has happened. So, you know, we ask for Allah's guidance in these things. How are we to live in this world? One of the ways is not just being, you see, generosity is not just giving in charity, Shafat. Mm. It is uplifting people as well. Because a prophetic example was the Muhajireen helped the Ansar. Yes. Uh, oh, sorry, the Ansar helped Help, the Muhajireen. Uh, Mujahir, uh, yeah. And then they gave, uh, they gave them everything. Everything. Just in this unique society and it was there you know this is not something that we can dream about it actually happened it happened these men were empowered by the people that took them in and looked after them and shared with them and empowered them and uh, the same in the business field you know the sahabis helped each other 
they established business uh, and um, they knew how to trade and they knew what to do. So all of these things are possible. You know, you could, you can maybe go and create a new trading block of Muslim countries. I don't know. I don't know what the answers are. I do know what the problems are. And I do know what the source of our answers are. But I don't know how to implement it. You know, that, that's the difficulty. Um, except by education. No, education is a cause for refined disposition. Reminding me of an anecdote whilst we're talking about money. People, be careful. A fool and his money are soon parted. Ashraf, I want to know from you. We had uh, this rule of the caliphate of the you know, the Ottoman or the Osmani Empire. And, you know, they ran it. How did they run the currency? How did they... Uh, I mean, it was successful, isn't it? And uh, we, we'd never had this problem. How come, Ashraf? Well, remember, gold and... Uh, from the time of the Quran uh, up to the end of the caliphate, the proven money of the Muslim Ummah was dirham and dinar, silver and uh, gold. And so it was money wherever you took it. It was verifiable. It was universal. It was indestructible. And uh, it was uh, trusted. And we, we've examined that the, the rise of the uh, blacksmith who became the goldsmith and how he had all of these receipts for gold in his uh, in his um, in his safe because he he knew how to work with, with iron and to keep things secure and then he suddenly found oh I've got a lot of receipts I can issue my own receipts against it and people started trading in receipts and that became uh, the IOU or bills of exchange and and then that's how the thing. Uh, ballooned and manifested and of course by we saw by 1657 the registering of um, the Bank of England and unsurprisingly Shafat the registration you see the other thing is that we, we often ignore is this thing of the rise of the corporation you know the so-called division between the shareholders directors and the mm. uh, credit and we all operate on that system you know, we all operate in this um, fiction that the company has got personality separate and different from its shareholders and directors. So when the company goes bankrupt, you don't go bankrupt. But in Islam, there is no such thing. You are your debts and your debts are you. And, and you have to make good. You can't declare bankruptcy or sequestration in the deen. Yeah, you're making a lot of sense there. And there you gave the answer. Uh, this is how they worked and uh, this all went. And, uh, you know, this type of thing, I'm looking at and I'm looking at criminality at such a high level. I think about all these uh, world leaders, you know, the Panama Papers, and you had this uh, putting money offshores here, there and everywhere. And uh, some of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, scoundrels, uh, these are the drug dealers, the drug lords, and they even accused the queen of being the head of all these cartels. But these money, uh, you know, are put in the, these uh, safe havens, uh, which is uh, perhaps are protected by government uh, agents and uh, the governments themselves, uh, trying to eliminate other criminals who are not part of their clique, uh, you know, taking them out of the equation, but are really running a racket with the world with the criminality or even, you know, the people do the tender deals and these deals. Uh, the excess money is uh, 
siphoned into these illegal bank accounts, but no one can touch them. Talk to us, Ashraf. Well, I think you hit it on the head. I mean, it's you know we call criminals criminals, but we don't call the uh, the parties that that enable crime to be criminals. Mm. Um, how how is a tender, um, you know, corruptible if there isn't assistance from the from the people in charge? So again, you know, Shavad, again, you know, we have a skewed view of, of, of reality and existence. And um, we, we, we tend to, we tend to uh, punish the innocent and let the criminals off, you know, in many, many ways. Uh, and you can take any government in the world, especially the French government. Is uh, they, they would tell you, I think there was a Spanish report on this. That in every arms deal, there's absolute and guaranteed corruption. Now, who's corrupting who, and how does it come about that that you have this system in place, and then zero accountability because by the time it's all investigated, um, yeah, you can take our own arms deal. You remember there was yes. a finding that, yeah. So I think it was the Seriti Commission of Inquiry. And, uh, you know, you could, you could see from there that the, there was a lot of uh, talk about how the inquiry was, um, had, had, had basically um, ignored very, very serious information that was brought uh, to the attention, but not, uh, not uh, examined. I think... I think that they were speaking about two container loads full of documents. Hmm. So again, I'm just going back to the point about where and how do you punish who? Because corruption is a two-way street. And I think that is very, very clearly outlawed even in the dean. Both, both the, the, the corrupter and corruptee are equally complicit. Shrafa, you're making a lot of sense this evening. And as you said, uh, the, these people are complicit. I mean, talking about that arms deal, uh, the, the, the French arms deal, they said uh, Thabo Mbeki and some even said, uh, you know, allegedly that Nelson Mandela knew about the whole thing and what was going on there. And something happened somewhere. But uh, conveniently, it was uh, Jacob Zuma who stood uh, in the front of the, uh, you know, Zondo Commission. And, uh, you know, they went uh, selectively, they went for him. And some of the stories are because you're so anti-American and he didn't allow them in and so forth and so forth. But let that go on. We look at Aaron uh, uh, Mossoledi, the home affairs, uh, a lot of sagas coming through, a lot of cases. But he's still a very unhappy man about the ZDP. Talk to us, Ashraf. Yeah, so basically, let's just take um, a little bit of an update on what transpired with the ZDPs. So we know that this was a... Um, dispensation put into place for the last 14 years and then the Minister of Home Affairs suddenly decided to say I'm ending it there won't be any more extensions the obvious result of that was a uh, action by the Helen Sussman Foundation and COMSA um, and they got a judgment in their favor basically the judgment was was to the effect that you failed to consult with us and you fail to give adequate notice of your intended action 
Therefore, such a decision is invalid because uh, you can't just do that. You, you didn't follow due process. The matter went to court. Three bench judge found in favor of the applicants um, and uh, basically, um, you know, this is what the minister was now appealing in the week. And so there were two separate applications. There was the All Truckers Forum, and they brought an application saying the minister didn't even have the power to grant this in the first place. How does he have the power to grant an extension? And their case was rather short uh, because the judges said, oh, sorry, you brought this outside the 180 days uh, prescribed for administrative justice actions. And um, the old truckers were now part of the people appealing the judgment. Of course, the Minister of Home Affairs, in his case, was suggesting the following, that A, I did, um, I did consult with over 6,000 people before I made my decision. And now, I think this was rather surprising in the alternative, and it just came up that um, uh, I consulted after the fact, which which is which is what the judges were caught completely by surprise because I remember them asking the counsel for the minister, but where is your authority? If you say I can take a decision, and then consult you after I've taken a decision, mm. where's your authority? So you can see uh, that the Helen Susman Foundation counsel Stein Steinberg. I mean, she is senior counsel. She came out guns blazing, you know. She said, you know, this is admin law 101. I mean, admin law 101 simply means the Audi Ultram Patrum rule. Now, this is might be a mouthful, but it's an old Roman adage. You know, let the other side be heard before you make a decision. This is all, all the kinds of things that guarantee the rule of law and, you know, people can't... Um, uh, make decisions on their own without consulting uh, the affected parties. So this is where, this is where we are with this uh, this whole thing, Shavan. Well, we look at our country, and uh, perhaps it seems the only country that uh, allows, uh, you know, justice to take place, or you know, even takes care of those that are in the country, and uh, be it uh, legally. Or you know, I mean, legally or illegally, but this country gives everyone a fair hearing. Uh, if it was a country like America, would such a case uh, be tolerated? Like you know what Donald Trump did? Uh, those that he uh, illegally, we're gonna move them out by force, and they must move now. I'm gonna build a wall and so forth. But this country, its constitution, uh, is being upheld. upheld by the Helen Sussman Foundation or by AFRI Forum and so forth. Uh, Ashraf? Well, I don't think it's correct to say administrative just uh, decisions are not tested around the globe. Mm. Uh, this is a, is a universal, um, it's a universal standard almost that administrative decisions have to play by the book, uh, give you a chance to be heard give you a chance to um, challenge their decisions. So you remember, the the executive then hides behind the executive power and says, oh, no, no, I don't need to consult with you. This is not in the public interest. It's not public policy. 
this is very much a executive decision. Now, remember the way that things operate now is there is a division of power, right? Mm. Between um, the state, the judiciary, the judiciary and the uh, executive. So, you know, courts are loath to basically, you know, cross that line um, from from what is an executive decision to what is a public decision. So, uh, generally, executive decisions are not challengeable. Um, they're they're made on policy, and uh, uh, you know, they, 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 there's a policy that that rules. But our courts again have been extremely cautious in allowing just, you know, carte blanche to the executive. Uh, where there is an executive decision, they've also tested that to say, but uh, is this really something that you can do without consulting? So there is a thing called the principle of legality, which is a testing of decisions that are uh, against the Constitution, you know, wholly and truly. And in that case, both the state and the affected party have the right to take it to review, albeit that it's not a review in terms of Paja, you see. Mm. So it is, it is, you know, you can go to any communal jurisdiction. In the UK, there is um, a lot of these decisions that are tested. Uh, Shamima Begum yes. was a citizen of the UK, and then she was stripped of it because of allegiance to ISIS or something like that. And that was an administrative decision. And it was tested against uh, administrative law. Um, the same in Australia, you also have that. So it's kind of like one one standard uh, based on these old principles of what we call natural justice, you know. Um, you mustn't be biased, you mustn't be unfair. Those are the, Those are the kinds of prescripts that we use when we judging a, a decision. Nashraf, my mind is racing here. So uh, people like Afia Siddiqui is still incarcerated Guantanamo Bay. I still believe there are some brothers uh, that are there for crimes uh, that they never perpetrated. Uh, how do we read into this, uh, Ashraf? So again, very clever legal maneuvering, especially by the State Department. The Guantanamo um, prisoners were never charged in terms of the civil or domestic legislation. They were charged in terms of being enemy combatants. So they say that those rules don't apply. Afia Siddiqui, I must say, I know very little about this. Mm. I read that she's been incarcerated and charged and, you know, uh, again, I think it was her charge was attacking some soldiers or something. So I guess the same kind of standard will apply, which will be that it is not in terms of the domestic legislation, but the military legislation. And that seems to have its own um, own rules. Um, from the little that I've seen during the movies of, I don't know, not Top Gun, there were a couple of movies that dealt with the American um, military, uh, you know, the, the way the military courts work um, and, and where, how you can challenge it and stuff like that. But you recall that um, 
Mohamed Ali was yeah. tried under, uh, yeah. So basically, you know, uh, for not wanting to serve in the military. And there's a good example of how he was able to argue his case. There's a very good documentary on Ali that actually uh, speaks to how the justices in the Supreme Court, uh, which is the which is the equivalent of our constitutional court, reached a totally unanimous judgment in his favor. Uh, and so, so it's very very interesting how the law was applied there. Well, Muhammad Ali said, "The Viet Cong." They do me no wrong. Yeah, Ashraf, I tell you, I really enjoy you, and I enjoyed you immensely this evening. Perhaps uh, your parting words before we let you go? Well, we didn't do justice to our topic, which <laughs> was uh, all these things in home affairs in, you know, in court recently. Um, there's this thing about them, uh, you know, not giving ID documents um, to, to children. There's a whole lot of other cases almost on a daily basis uh, about them, not just blocking the IDs, but, you know, depriving them of their, um, of their opportunities in life. But as always, Shafat, we are hopeful because Allah says to us that he is the most gracious, most merciful. He's the answer of prayers. He alone do we worship and him alone do we ask for help. So that is, that is what I think we must always bear in mind. No matter what the situation of the day, whatever happens, if there's a nuclear war tomorrow or whatever, only our relationship with our Creator will be everlasting. Everything else will perish, including this earth, at, at one stage. So if it's not today, there will come a time when the, when the um, earth will be rolled up and we will be then, you know, present be, before our Lord. So. That is the day that we hope for and we live for. Uh, the sideshow is, is what, we're going, what we're seeing at present. So let us re remain vigilant and hopeful and focused. Always make dua for the Ummah, recite the Yasins, give Sadaqah. And I'd like to retake the challenge of asking our business community to only allow 1% of their business mm. to be totally Islamic. Uh, remember, uh, planting of trees is a very, very big blessing. We must try and do that as well. But that's my message, Shavad. Absolutely brilliant, Ashrafa. You have a beautiful evening ahead. Inshallah, we'll talk to you soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yes, uh, Ashraf Isub, the senior attorney, Ashraf Isub, uh, very eloquent and mashallah giving us a very incisive uh, analysis of uh, what's really going on in this world and uh, this uh, meretricious world where we can be just duped by it. And, uh, you know, if we get caught into the system and we embrace and celebrate the system, it's going to let us down uh, badly. So, alhamdulillah, hold tight. The, you know, to the rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Remember, Allah is Wallahu Alimun Hakimun. Allah is all knowing, all wise. Wallahu Khayru Razikin. And Allah is the best of uh, providers. Wallahu Khayru Razikin. And also that 1% challenge. I like that, you know. Alhamdulillah. Just said the Ummah, if they only get into that, what a difference that will make, inshallah. So uh, we hope and pray that you're going to have a beautiful evening also. I must thank uh, Lukolo for great engineering uh, this 
this evening. Uh, okay, Lukolo, we still got another hour to go, by the way. Yes, uh, next up will be the Isha Azan. Let's go for the Isha Azan. And thereafter, we'll be joining you on Wasail al-Elam Sadika. That is Truthful News.